I'm Mark Amender, and this is Knowledge Wonderland. we have Donald Trump and low-grade political violence. But what would happen here if it suddenly all fell apart? What would happen if we were in the midst of the longest recession in a century, the biggest bribery scandal in history, maybe living under the most unpopular leader in living memory? That, by the way, is not Barack Obama. whose approval rating is 52%. That's how The Economist introduced readers to the chaos in Brazil, the fifth largest country in the world, a country that in 2010 had an economic growth rate exceeding 7%. That is, that's China-like growth. They're going to host the Olympics in August, which of course is a, is a nightmare for any country. Uh, 1.5 million cases of the Zika virus are found in the country now. The welfare state, one that grew significantly over the past decade, has been ravaged by inflation, which means that a lot of people are suffering a lot. Welcome to the Knowledge Wonderland podcast. The topic today is Brazil. I am Mark Amender from Los Angeles. Thank you so much for joining us. Having a great time doing these podcasts. Many of you are listening, which I'm grateful for. I'd be more grateful if you'd subscribed iTunes or wherever else you subscribe to podcasts, please support the company that kindly hosts and distributes the Knowledge Wonderland podcast, and that is Acast. You can go to acast.com for all of your podcast needs. They have a really, really great podcast player that they are constantly updating. Acast.com. Follow along at knowledgewonderland.com or at markambender.com for more. So, The impetus for this particular episode comes from a tweet that MSNBC's Christopher Hayes sent out after an incredible week in Brazil, wondering what the hell is going on there, wondering why somebody doesn't just, damn it, do a podcast about it, find someone brilliant there to talk to, and do a podcast. So that's why I reached out to Alex Quadros. His first book, Brazilianaires, about the ultra-wealthy and the, the roots of this scandal, will be published in July and you should look it up and pre-reserve a copy. Uh, so the basic top line of the scandal, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to bullet point my way through this, and then uh, we'll unpack it with Alex Quadros. The current president, Dilma Rousseff, has decided to employ as her chief of staff the former president, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, or Lula, as he is known, very popular with ordinary Brazilians, having gainfully increased material living conditions, of workers and the poor during his tenure in office. Dilma, President Rousseff, whose rather left-wing workers' party, the WT, has a fragile majority in Congress in partnership with a centrist party that is itself under investigation for election shenanigans. Brazil's powerful and fairly independent judiciary had been investigating Lula and others for their role in the kickback scheme involving the country's Petrobras oil company, By making Lula her chief of staff, Dilma gives him immunity from the current investigation because only the Supreme Court 
can investigate members of the cabinet, members of the president's staff. So last week, the prosecutor, Sergio Moto, who had been hounding Lula, suddenly released wiretap conversations between Lula and Dilma, showing, he believed, proof of this quid pro quo. So the government now is putting pressure on the investigation itself. Other powerful institutions in the country, including the media and financial elite, are helping to foment protests in the streets. And then, of course, the Olympics begin in August. So you're in San Paulo at the moment. Yes, I'm in Sao Paulo. I've been living here since 2010. And what is it like right now? Is it something that's on the television wall to wall? Um, is it crisis coverage? You get the sense from talking to people on the streets that they are perceiving the country as in crisis? Or are people going about living their daily lives while all this sort of swirls around them? Well, people are, you know, living their daily lives. It's not like people have stopped going to work and, and school and everything, but it definitely dominates the conversation. I mean, day-to-day -day conversation, it dominates uh, family life. Uh, you know, this, this is probably something that's familiar to Americans, uh, you know, with the cliche about the Thanksgiving dinner. But yeah. uh, in Brazil, there's a lot of strife between families because things are so polarized and um, Brazilians love to use WhatsApp, you know, this messaging service, and they always have um, family groups. And it sounds like a lot of Brazilians have, uh, you know, if not encountered family crises, um, are at least fighting with their families on a regular basis. So it's something that, that is on people's tongues and on people's minds all the time. It does seem as if, from this outsider's perspective, everyone's hands are sort of tainted in this, in the sense that the judiciary may have overreached. All the political parties are suffering through corruption investigations. Um, the the financial and media elites are hyping the notion of corruption in one coalition in order to get their preferred coalition back into office after Lula's uh, long-term and wealth redistribution. I mean, you're having just a constellation of, of people with motives. But from your coverage and from reading some of the people, some of the, the tweets that the people tweet to you and, and the the best hope for some sort of resolution lies with, in, in some measure, the judiciary remaining independent and perceived as independent and, and allowing this investigation, the, the Lava Jato. Is that the right way to pronounce it? Yeah, Lava Jato. Lava Jato, which, which is car wash. Yeah, I think actually, if you're going to talk about the origins of Lava Jato, it's it's hard not to talk about or to go way back into history in Brazil because I think, you know, for an American reading about what's happening in Brazil without much of an understanding of the history of Brazil, you hear about billions of dollars being skimmed off of public contracts. And it's something that just doesn't fit with our world. We can't understand how this could possibly be the case. 
And I think people come away with the impression that the Workers' Party, which is the President's Party and Lula's Party, and has been in office since 2003, is somehow an exception in its extreme corruption. Um, And in absolute dollar terms, that may be true just because the economy is so much bigger. Uh, Petrobras, the state oil company, where most of the bribes have been skimmed from, grew exponentially with uh, the rising price of oil and so on. So in absolute dollar terms, it may be uh, a new scale of corruption. But in terms of the extent of corruption, this is nothing new. It's something that goes back to the very founding of Brazil. Uh, In the 16th century, one of the richest men in the country was the assistant to the colony's governor general, and he made his fortune by doling out favors. And this this idea of the purpose of public service has survived all of these centuries. Um, In the 19th century, uh, many of the richest Brazilians were slavers who um, were not legally allowed to import slaves as native Brazilians, according to the rules of the Portuguese crown, but did it anyway, and everyone kind of looked the other way. Um, And when the emperor of Portugal came over to Rio fleeing Napoleon's forces, instead of cracking down on them in any way, he was strapped for cash, so he gave them titles of nobility uh, in return for financial support for his government. So you have a, a deep cultural relationship with corruption here. So the, the uh, tradition and, of public service is intertwined in some way with using the public till to enrich yourself. And I would assume that the electorate accepts that at some at some level. We all... In the, in the United States, we're certainly not immune to the notion that there is around the margins and perhaps to a lesser extent, low-grade corruption, although this the grade of this corruption might have been might have been higher. Certainly in, in the case of Lula, with one of the investigations, fairly ostentatious houses that were built, and then his foundation claims that he didn't own them, and there's lots of debate, but we do see very, very lavish properties that were built during his tenure, seemingly for him to to occupy. Is that what bothers people so much? Or is it the fact that after a, a significant period of prosperity, a period where the material wealth of a lot of poor Brazilians was bettered, increased, perhaps at the expense of the upper middle class and, and the wealthy, everyone's fortune, everyone's fortunes are taking a downturn. And then suddenly the corruption that has existed becomes all the more bothersome or becomes kind of paramount in people's minds as a symptom as to why Brazil can't be stable. Yeah, I think two things are happening here. Uh, One is that, you know, you have this long history of corruption and uh, endemic at every level of government uh, since Brazil exists. But in recent years, the institutions have been maturing. Uh, You know, it's important to remember that Brazil exited a military dictatorship in 1985. You know, that's just 30 years ago. Right. And it took a while for uh, 
an independent judiciary and an independent federal police, which is the body that's responsible for most of these investigations, uh, to develop. And this is partly to the credit of the Workers' Party, ironically enough. Uh, under Lula, he allocated a lot more resources. He appointed a justice minister who gave this body a lot more independence. So part of what we're seeing is corruption, the endemic corruption that has always existed in Brazil, finally being uncovered in a systematic way. And people, very powerful politicians, some of the richest businessmen in the country, finally being held to account. So I think there's an error of perception on the part of many Brazilians as well that because so much is coming to light now, the Workers' Party is the most corrupt party ever. On the other hand, um, what you're saying about the economic crisis is absolutely true. Um, the fact is that a lot of the outrage here has to do with the fact that during the Lula years, there was this idea that Brazil was on the cusp of becoming a developed nation. Um, you know, it won the World Cup, uh, the right to hold the World Cup, the right to hold the Olympics. The economy was booming. Tens of millions of people rose from poverty. And uh, there's this cliche that's constantly recycled in Brazil about how it's the country of the future and always will be. And Lula sold the idea that the future was finally arriving, and a lot of people started to believe that. So when the economy took a turn for the worse, um, there was a broad feeling of letdown and disappointment. And all of a sudden, this bright future that seemed really close uh, seemed very distant again. Um, and one way that you can prove, or at least say that a big part of the outrage isn't about the corruption, is that this is not the first corruption scandal that the Workers' Party has been through. In 2005, it was discovered that Lula's deputies were buying votes in Congress to get his projects through. But the economy was booming, and the next year he was re-elected in a landslide. So it's impossible to separate the economic crisis from the discontent over the corruption. And I think part of the reason that the corruption investigators are having the success that they're having is that there is massive public pressure for the investigations to continue. And that pressure didn't exist 10 years ago when the economy was on fire. And do you think that that public pressure will continue and will sustain these investigations? Do you think that perhaps the impeachment of if it happens of Dilma, would allow the government to say, okay, we've taken care of the problem. Let's now claw back at some of the powers we've accorded to the judiciary. I, I think that's the biggest concern right now for Brazil is that, first of all, there's this mistaken idea that the Workers' Party is the most corrupt party ever. And, you know, when you see, uh, when you look at the signs at the protests, they talk a little bit about some of the opposition politicians who've been mentioned in scandals, but the focus is really Lula and Juma. So 
I think there's a very big risk that if Jilma is impeached, and I think that that is extremely likely in the next couple of months, that there'll be this feeling of catharsis and this mistaken impression that somehow by kicking out the workers' party, you've solved the corruption problem, or at least solved the biggest part of the corruption problem. Uh, and there are signs that uh, the main opposition party, the PSDB, who, whose leader has been cited in the uh, Petrobras corruption scandal, and the PMDB, which used to be the coalition partner of the Workers' Party and is in the process of breaking with it, are going to take advantage of impeachment to um, kind of sweep things under the rug once Jilma is out of power. Michelle Termer, the current vice president, is would, would step in and become uh, the acting president. What do we know about him? Well, there. first of all, there are a couple of scenarios under which Jilma could leave power. Okay. One is impeachment. And if she is impeached and the main case for impeachment is strangely not related to the corruption at Petrobras, but uh, is based on the allegation that she violated budget rules. It's kind of seen as a pretense, something that they can prove because she hasn't actually been directly linked to the corruption, but something that can be proved as a pretense to take her out it's of power. It's the Al Capone on tax evasion. It, that is actually, that comparison has been made. <laughs> um, and if that happens, her vice president uh, will become president. There's another case that is before the country's electoral court that is looking at whether her 2014 re-election campaign took dirty money from the Petrobras scheme. Since she ran with the vice president on her ticket, if the court rules that her campaign did in fact receive dirty money, uh, they will both be kicked out of office. And if that happens this year, new elections will be called. Okay. What is the likelihood that there's some resolution to the political dimensions of this before the Olympics? I think that there will be no resolution before the Olympics, but I think that it is very likely that Juma will be impeached before the Olympics. Some people are saying that it could happen as soon as uh, a vote in Congress could happen as soon as the end of May, and the Olympics are in August. Now, that would be the resolution to one piece of the crisis, but the beginning of a whole other set of problems and conflicts, of course. Why is Brazil's economy in so much trouble right now? I mean, I noticed, for example, I, uh, in, inflation is out of control. In terms of a direct economic challenge to people's material conditions, a lot of the money they're getting from the government in terms of the more generous welfare state is being diluted by extraordinarily high inflation? Well, two main factors. One is commodities. Uh, a big part of the boom during the Lula years had to do with the growth of China and its huge appetite for commodities, which raised the price of oil and iron ore and beef, which are a huge source of export revenue for Brazil. But that wasn't the only part of the boom. Uh, another big part of the boom was that 
Lula expanded this welfare program to 50 million Brazilians and turned them into consumers to some degree. And likewise, the fall in commodity prices now that China is slowing isn't the only reason that, econ that Brazil's economy has kind of ground to a halt. It seems like Dilma, while in office, really did mismanage the economy. In 2010, Lula's last year in office, the economy grew at 7.5%, which is near China-like speed and is, has been seen a few times uh, in Brazil's history. When Dilma came into office, instead of, she put the brakes on to a degree, but she didn't, uh, she didn't remove the kind of counter-cyclical measures, the kind of, you know, following the classic Keynesian idea that you, the government uh, should spend during recessions that helped Brazil get through the financial crisis. Um, instead of paring that back, she expanded it. And one of the main ways that she expanded it was, um, interestingly, not through social programs, which is what the Workers' Party is most identified with, um, but through top-down, trickle-down subsidies for giant corporations. Uh, Brazil has a state development bank known as the BNDES, which lends out more money, or used to before the current recession, uh, than the World Bank. And so we're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars in loans at very low interest rates subsidized by the taxpayer. So basically the government took on debt at high rates and lent at low rates. The other thing was to award huge tax breaks also to the tune of possibly hundreds of billions of dollars uh, to giant corporations. But it looks like in both of those cases, it didn't really increase investment. The companies just increased their profit margins. Uh, and it saddled Brazil with this enormous debt and is a big part of the reason that uh, the recession is as bad as it is now, because the government has had to pare back on a lot of its spending and public works and even its education and health budgets. I want to see if you can tell the, the listeners a little bit about the prosecutor who who in effect is driving some of the more recent political the political developments because he fascinates me but the powers that he has fascinates me his ability to wiretap a former sitting president and then have those wiretaps processed and released the same you know within within a what within a day of them being recorded is is amazing yeah well he's a fascinating figure, and I think one of the most controversial figures right now in Brazil. Um, he, his name is Sergio Moro, and he's the judge in charge of the Lava Jato investigations. This is a bit strange for an American because judges here take a more active role in investigations. They approve major new steps in the investigations and have a certain role in collecting evidence. And then they judge, usually without a jury, you know, who is guilty and their sentence. So that is a peculiarity of the Brazilian justice system. Now, in his case specifically, he's someone who had a background in financial investigations, uh, money laundering investigations, and his team happened on the connection to Petrobras because they were investigating this money launderer 
and found that he'd gotten a, uh, a Land Rover as a gift from an executive at Petrobras. And they just started pulling on this thread and kept pulling, and it eventually led to what we see now with dozens of politicians and businessmen implicated. And I think his, his power to go after someone like Lula is on the one hand, the product of uh, maturing institutions, uh, like I was mentioning earlier. Um, but on the other hand, is a bit concerning. Um, because when he chose to release a secretly recorded phone call between Lula and the current sitting president, Juma, he took that decision in a matter of hours. This was not something that he meditated on. Um, and he did it because Lula was being named minister and was going to, uh, under Brazilian law, ministers and congressmen uh, can only be tried by the Supreme Court. So it would leave this judge Sergio Moro's jurisdiction. So it looked a bit like a panicked, uh, all-in, last-ditch effort to expose Lula and expose Juma before the case left his hands, because in a day, he would no longer get to decide what he could release to the public and what he couldn't. And this has brought a lot of criticism. It's actually brought criticism from uh, some legal experts who are associated with the opposition. Uh, a couple of sitting Supreme Court justices say that he went too far, um, because they say that as soon as he realized that he was recording the president of the country, he no longer had the right to choose what happened with that recording. It needed to be forwarded to the Supreme Court. He actually, the, the judge cited uh, the Watergate case as a precedent, saying that uh, it proved that even a president's conversations are subject to release to the public. But it was a very strange comparison because... Well, yeah, because I the Watergate case upheld the principle of executive executive privilege while conditioning it, but it's also a decision that the U.S. Supreme Court made. Um, right, not exactly. A, yeah, not a court a, battle. And, and of course, it was Nixon recording himself. It was Nixon recording himself, yes. Right. So, but there's, there's a feeling, and I think justified, that he may have stepped over the bounds from just a fight on corruption to a fight on specific people and a party in power. And I think in any case, he hasn't taken the care to preserve the appearance of impartiality, which I think is just as important. Essentially, is there enough demand that this investigation go forward that, provided he's not more erratic, if Congress begins to set a course for impeachment of Dilma, then you know, will, will his stature have recovered enough for him to be able to finish his investigation well, that's a really good question. Um, and what happens in impeachment, Congress will be deciding basically, basically on political terms rather than legal terms. So he created a political fact that the legal merit of which is kind of beside the point when it comes to Jilma's uh, impeachment. Now, he's throughout most of the course of his investigations, he's been very cautious 
because in the past, so many rich and powerful people have been able to get off the hook, uh, not by not because they're innocent or because they can prove their innocence, but because they've been able to capitalize on procedural errors. So he's generally been very careful. And I don't think that this uh, overreach invalidates the investigations as a whole. But it does create the risk that if Juma's impeached and these other parties come in, they can similarly capitalize on that to put a lid on the Lava Jato investigations. There's a saying in Brazil, um, when a scandal ends with no one rich and powerful suffering any real consequences, people say it ends in pizza because of this famous dispute between soccer clubs that was resolved over uh, a giant order of pizzas. So there's a risk of pizza, and he, by overstepping, ironically, he may have endangered um, the investigations that he's been leading. Tell me a little bit about your book, The Brazilianaires. It seems like it's going to come out. It's going to come out in July. It's a very auspicious time to be uh, writing about the accumulation of wealth in Brazil? Yeah, well, the book um, is largely based on my experience as a reporter at Bloomberg, where I was invited to join this new team of journalists that would exclusively cover the world's billionaires. And since I live in Sao Paulo, I was the guy responsible for Latin America. So I spent two years uh, investigating um, the billionaires, especially of Brazil, because I live here, I, I was interested in them most of all, but investigating, interviewing several of them, and kind of just living with them at the front of my brain for a long time. And so what I do in the book is I try to tell the story of Brazil through the lives of some of these characters and through the lives of the ordinary Brazilians who, uh, whose lives are affected by uh, these billionaires. And that is the Knowledge Wonderland podcast, episode number four. I'm Mark Amater. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much to our guest, Alex Quadros. Once again, be sure to go to Amazon.com and pre-reserve your copy of his great book, Brazilianaires. Acast distributes and hosts the audio for this podcast. And they're a wonderful company. I really like their podcast player. You can get it at acast.com. Music, as always, by Tintin B, Facebook slash Tintin B. Henshi Hikari was kind enough to produce this episode. Follow me at Mark Amender, M-A-R-C-A-M-B-I-N-D-E-R. If you want to support this podcast, listen to it, subscribe to it, tell your friends about it. We'll see you next time.